Hello and welcome to the Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We are recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I am one of your hosts, Trey Dedman, and I am joined, as I am every week, by Mr. Shane Reeves. You know, there's people when you walk into a shop. People who need people. <laughs> and you see them, and it just makes your day. It brightens your day, makes you a little happier to know that they're there because you know there's going to be a good conversation involved or something along those lines. And if you're going into a shop and you don't have that person... You are that person. Hopefully, (laughs) or you need a new shop. (laughs) But our guest today is that guy for me. When I open the door and I see Jay Drescher sitting at the bar holding court, as I like to call it, (laughs) it just, it makes me happy. It brings a smile to my face. So our guest today is author, lawyer, raconteur, raconteur, all overall, really good dude, Jay Drescher. Well, I hope the... Those listening don't get their expectations up too much. Um, I do admit that I am an attorney. I've just joined the ranks of being an author, and hopefully I'll get to plug my book a little bit. I, I couldn't agree more with your comment about uh, what makes uh, visiting a cigar shop fairly regularly entertaining and fun is all the uh, interesting people that you meet. It is. It's one of the things we talk about all the time, that this is such a gentleman's pursuit. A cigar is a gentleman's pursuit. It is a time when gentlemen can gather to exchange ideals. Well, women go to the uh, beauty shop and they get their nails done and their toes done, and uh, I guess this is the male equivalent of that. We come in here and smoke cigars and uh, share share some conversations about current events or things that matter and sometimes things that don't. But it's uh, it's always nice to be nice to meet new and interesting people, and the cigar shop is a good place to do that. Well, and Jay had a very interesting observation when he sat down with us today, which was, you know, I think you guys just went through a lot of trouble uh, just to have an excuse to sit around and smoke some nice cigars. And, you know, I think that's exactly what we're doing. So why don't we just get this show on the road? Shane, what are you going to be smoking tonight? Okay. So last week was Shark Week, big week in my life. This week is Sharknado Week. Sci-Fi Channel does their annual monster movie marathon. Anybody that's listened to this show knows I love the B-Monster movie. One of my favorite things going today. So tonight, in honor of Sharknado Week, I will be smoking the CAMO Anaconda. (laughs) And the movie Anaconda is one of those that fits into that B-movie category, but was actually released as an (laughs) A-movie. Yeah, John Voight and um, Jennifer Lopez were Mm -hmm. in it, and I forget who the guy was that was in it. I want to say Ice Cube was in that. I'm not sure. He was. Yeah. And one of those movies that should have been a B-movie, but now the next um, three Anaconda movies that they made afterwards had much lesser-known actors and much less release. As As they always tend to do. And what's interesting about that cigar is I I was lucky enough to enjoy one of those at the release party for your book last week. And so that same style, it's that same style tobacco as in the Fuma Encorda, which I smoked last week, and the Amazon Basin, which you smoked about a month or a month or month and a half ago or so. Um, So it's that same... Braganca. Braganca, thank you. I was hoping if I talked long enough, you would jump in with that. And... I find the Anaconda to be the best of the three, for me personally. That's what everybody keeps telling me. It is, um, the wrapper is a Brazilian Bahiano Habano. Now, here's something that my preacher taught me. When you can't pronounce a word, say it fast. 
<laughs> it's Nicaraguan binder. The filler is Colombian, Dominican, and Brazilian Braganca. So I'm very excited to try this smoke. I've been looking forward to it. I picked one up at the author signing event as well and decided I would save it for the show because I knew Sharknado Week was coming. Excellent. What are you smoking tonight? So I am smoking the Futuro by Warp Cigars. So Austin recently brought Warp Cigars into the humidor here at Crown, and I've not really had much of an opportunity to smoke many of their cigars in the past, even though I've seen them around. So this was a great opportunity for me to try a cigar that I've never had before, which I tend to be doing a lot of on the show lately. Uh, it was released in 2015, so it's been out a while. This is the Selection 109 size, so it's got a, it's a little bit of a bellicoso, for lack of a better term. It's all Nicaraguan. Uh, binder, filler, wrapper, all made in Esteli, which is probably, we've talked a lot about how big of fans we are of Nicaraguan cigars in general, but if I'm being even more picky, Esteli is where I go for the cigars that I like. Well, I came in Tuesday night before poker and was going to pick one of those up, and Austin's actually gave me a little warning. He said, you know, these might be a little milder than you'll enjoy, Shane. You could have told me that before I cut it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he did say that was the best of the, of the ones he's got, so give it a shot. And, it may, and sometimes I like a mild cigar. I don't always have to knock my socks off. As hot as it's been lately, it might not be a bad thing for me, actually. So while Trey lights up, Jay, you're going to be smoking Dunhills? Uh, I'm not a real cigar aficionado, even though I spend a lot of time here in the cigar shop. Um, I do prefer a mild cigar when I do smoke cigars. Um, the shop has been carrying Dunhill cigarettes. And uh, when I, in a prior life as a Marine Judge Advocate, I was stationed in London, England for three years. So uh, any, anything British always comes with a little extra cachet. Now, you may not smoke just a ton of cigars, but you have certainly contributed quite a few of them to Shane's and my humidor via the weekly poker game around here. <laughs> I can't deny that. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the book, because I'm really excited. I haven't read the book yet, because I've been saving it for my cruise. My cruise is in two weeks. I can't wait to sit on the deck of the ship, a good cigar in my hand, a good book in the other hand, and just enjoy the tale well the the cigar shop uh has a has a central role to this endeavor of mine last september i had read some stories and books about pirates and it was all from the historical record i wrote a short story and there's uh there's an author and a publisher that frequents the cigar shop named mark gilroy and he was one of the ones that read the short story and he told me after reading it, he goes, this is pretty good. You ought to see what you can do with it. So over the next three months, I wrote my first draft. And uh, people that frequent the cigar shop, either those that work here or those that are frequent customers, uh, there's a lot of names in the book that, that derive from the cigar shop. Probably the one that is one of my personal favorites. There's a gentleman that comes in here named Javier. Everybody calls him Javi. He's from Puerto Rico. Haven't seen him for a while, but uh, there's a pirate in the book called Javier, Rodrigo Javier Delgado de la Fontaine, but his nickname was Poppy Chulo, and they call him Poppy for short. But there's a Campbell, there's a Huff, there's a Rob Williams, there's a Captain Kane for Fred Kane, 
there's one mention of a Ladner, just one. <laughs> Uh, there's a James. Obviously hung. There's a, there's a, uh, there's. I think you, you mean by the neck, I hope. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they would call that the necklace of hemp, by the way. Um, and then one of the, one of the bad guys in the story, because it's historical fiction, is uh, named after James Starling, who works here. And uh, there's a real pirate story where a, a ship was seized in the Indian Ocean. And the hall was so rich that every pirate on board was given 42 diamonds, except for one guy. And he was given an enormous diamond, but he was, he was a little lacking in intelligence, and he was mad thinking that he'd been gypped. So he took a sledgehammer and smashed his diamond. So in my book, the pirate named James Starling is known by the nickname of Diamond, and that's where that comes from. So what I did was I took the short story I'd written, and then I did some more research, and it kind of took on a life of its own. It's about a, a navigator named Harry Glasby who was kidnapped by real-life pirate captain Bartholomew Roberts, forced to be his navigator, and all Glasby wants to do is try to get away. And in the real story, Glasby tries to escape and doesn't realize that two other pirates had also selected that very moment to desert, and they all get caught. Glasby goes on trial. Pirates had a very uh, sort of a regimented means of handling discipline among themselves. Uh, they had written rules called the Articles, and they had trials. There's actually four trials in the book, and three of which really took place, one of which involved Harry Glasby. So he's charged with desertion along with two other pirates, and they're all sentenced to death, but a real pirate named Valentine Ashplant, who has to have one of the coolest names ever, stands up and rescues Harry from being executed. The other two pirates were taken and tied to one of the masts the next morning and were shot. But Glasby survives and he ends up gaining his freedom. So that formed the core of the story. Now, much of, much of the story about his life in Boston, um, his family relationships, the things that he does to try to get free and then what he does afterwards, that's the fiction part. But thus far, uh, those people that have had an opportunity to read the book, either the, the print version or the e-book on Kindle, uh, have, it's been very well received, and uh, I've learned two things. One, writing a book is very fun, it's very challenging, uh, takes a lot of effort, but it's rewarding, it's kind of inspiration. Marketing a book and trying to get people to buy it as an unknown author uh, is perspiration, it's a lot of work. So the, the title of the book is called Glasby's Fortune, it's uh, on Amazon. You can buy it in a print version or as an ebook, and um, it's listed under the name of James H. Drescher. Everybody knows me as Jay. But one of the one of the high points since the book has been put into the into print and made available, uh, we had a big book signing event here at the cigar shop uh, last Thursday, which was a great deal of fun. And I must I must uh, take a moment to thank. Shane's lovely wife, Glinda, who made some really cool pirate cupcakes and a big cake and put pirate flags in all the cupcakes. So uh, we got to enjoy those as well. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun. So I want to thank Trey and Shane for letting me come on. And while they talk about cigars, I can talk about my book. So I really appreciate it. So how did you come to find the character of Glassby? I was just reading a book and uh, read, read about this uh, kidnapping and all the trials and tribulations that he went through to, to become free. And I thought, 
it was it was so interesting that I thought it would make an interesting short story. Now I'm a member of the Tennessee Bar. I'm, I've been a licensed attorney for 35 years, and it was amazing. Just as I was finishing the book, the Tennessee Bar Journal has a magazine that comes out, and on the on the cover was a pirate flag, and there was an article about pirate justice. And I, I contacted the editor of the Bar Journal, and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I've just finished writing a book about this very subject. It was a two- or three-page article, but it was about the real adventures of Glasby and the pirate trial and, and the things I mentioned earlier about kind of what was the, the genesis or the, the seeds of the book in the first place. Uh, as a trial lawyer, uh, writing about the trials was interesting to me because I could almost envision what it was like for them to go through their processes. Uh, of course, back in 1720, life was hard for everyone. Uh, I learned a lot about justice in the Royal Navy, and a lot of pirates were former Royal Navy sailors. They'd been kidnapped or impressed uh, from merchant ships, from port cities, and forced, literally forced to serve in the Royal Navy. And on a Royal Naval vessel in 1720 to 1722, which is when this takes place, there were all kinds of things that you could receive the death penalty for. Um, but flogging was very much part of the tradition and custom of the Royal Navy, and it was just brutal. So when given the choice between that life or being a pirate, where you really had a lot more freedom, even though the risks were high, disease, being wounded or killed in battle, or being captured and tried and hanged, I learned that for one, the average pirate was in his early 20s. Oh, wow. The other thing is that the average life expectancy of a pirate was about two years. So it was, as, as Bartholomew Roberts was quoted as saying, uh, it's a short life but a merry one for me. They had, they had very little rules among themselves, uh, but they were, they were people that flaunted convention. And of course, I'm often asked about all the stereotypes that surround pirates from films and, and movies and contemporary life. I've, I've tried my best to not make this a Disney film. This is, this is about real pirates. This is about what life was like at that time and all the things that they endured. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of sex, there's a lot of violence, but that was the life that they lived. Uh, one of the reasons that pirates were so popular among prostitutes was not because of their sexual prowess, but was because of their generosity. They would spend months and months at sea, and they, they would take their ill-gotten gains, and they would lavish it on their three or four days of drunken bacchanalia when they'd go ashore. And that's what you'd expect of a young man that was 20 or 19 or 21. Uh, in some ways, that's, that's life now as it was then, but that's what you'd expect. And I find the real, the real world of pirates to be far more interesting than the, the fantasy, the, the caricature, the peg legs, the, pirate, the patches, the parrots. Uh, th those are things that we all think of when we hear the word pirate. But they really did fly the black flag. And when the black flag was raised upon the top mast and, and you were a merchant ship, you had, you had a choice. You could either fight and die or you could surrender and give them whatever they wanted. And that's, that's really what the pirates wanted. They didn't want a battle. They just wanted your loot. And they would, go, they would go to great lengths to find out where it was hidden. And there were some very, very bad people among the pirates, but they were just like men in, of any stripe. 
they, there were some that were all bad, but very few. There were some that were good, but they were just young men, and they were basically sea, seaborn robbers is what they were. Hmm. And they really were viewed as a scourge um, by the British Navy, by the Spanish Navy, because they were, they were like gangs, and they, were, they, were, they could be very bloodthirsty and very, very vicious. Um, there's a TV show that was out recently on Stars called Black Sails, and it wasn't very historically accurate, but as far as the way that pirates lived and the way they conducted themselves, I thought it, I thought it captured the essence of that. Uh, I enjoyed watching it very much. So you keep saying these are not Disney pirates, but if Disney shows up and strokes a chick, they can be, right? <laughs> yes, uh, I can very easily be found through Amazon or any, a quick Google search. I'm still a practicing attorney, and trust me, uh, writing a book does not mean that I can give up my day job anytime soon. So... Okay, the eye patch. Did you do any research on the eye patch? Because Mythbusters did a whole thing about it, and I'm curious if that was even remotely true. You know, it's it's funny you mention that because uh, somewhere there, somewhere out there, there's a pirate aficionado who read my book and sent me a, a personal email claiming that the reason that pirates wore an eye patch was because when they would seize a vessel they would have to go down below decks to search for treasure. And there was no lighting, there's no windows, there's no candles, they didn't carry flashlights. So they used the eye patch to give themselves a night vision capability when they went below decks. I recently read that that theory about pirates wearing an eye patch is a myth, that that's not true. But go back to what I said about life being very difficult. When you think about it, modern medicine is modern. They didn't understand about germs. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I talk about in my book is the, um, there were two naval vessels that were searching for pirates off the coast of West Africa. One of the ships was uh, completely wiped out by disease. They literally lost every man on the ship. They had to replace them with other sailors from other ships or by pressing, impressing seamen that they would seize from merchant vessels. So, if a guy was wounded in the eye, there was no way to save the eye, he would wear an eye patch. If a man lost a, a, an arm or a hand or a leg, if they were wounded in any way, the, the only real remedy for it was amputation. If they survived that to live on, then they would have had to have had a peg leg or a hook or just gotten by with one arm or one leg. And that really happened. It happened in the Royal Navy, it happened in pirate ships. It probably happened in seaside villages around the world because medicine was so primitive. So, again, with many stereotypes, there's often a kernel or a germ of truth in it. You know, I think I read that same article that you just referenced and talked about how, yeah, that, that most of, because you mentioned the, the Mythbusters thing, they actually were able to prove that there were some night vision capabilities attained, but the the idea of... And anyone who's ever played golf or tennis or anything will tell you that if you close one eye, your depth perception goes to almost nothing. And so you would, it would essentially be a severe handicap to shield an otherwise healthy eye, especially for sword fighting or other types of uh, ocean-bound shenanigans. One of the things I learned about uh, the way that pirates structured the world they lived in, they actually had a very prescient or forethinking, kind of a, what would have been radical at the time, 
they actually had a very well-defined version of workers' compensation. And it's in the historical record. It varied from ship to ship, but their articles provided a, a very finite amount of money for a lost leg, like 800 um, pieces of eight. If you lost an arm, it was 400 pieces of eight. If you lost your right arm, it was 500 pieces of eight. If you lost an eye or a finger, it was 100 pieces of eight. So they actually had a program in place so that if you were wounded in battle to, to that degree, you were compensated for it. The other thing that was very unusual, because you remember that in 1720, almost all governments were monarchies. King George I was the king of England at the time. Pirates elected their captain, and the captain served at the pleasure of the crew. And there's, there's many tales of pirate ships having three or four captains in a, in a period of two or three weeks. Sometimes they were popular and voted in, sometimes they were unpopular and voted out. What's interesting about Bartholomew Roberts, who was a real and very successful pirate, in fact, the most successful pirate captain in the Caribbean, not the most successful pirate of all time, who actually is a female in China, who had a fleet. She's the most successful pirate of all time as a female pirate in China. But Bartholomew Roberts seized over 400 ships in three years, which is a remarkable accomplishment considering the fact that they were always being chased by the, by the authorities. He would often sail into a port and seize 20 or 30 ships at a time because of his ferocious reputation. But um, Roberts was never unseated. He was a very charismatic and very uh, capable leader. And he was, he was actually, oddly enough, kidnapped himself by a pirate named Howell Davis off the coast of Africa and, uh, and initially refused to become a pirate. But Howell Davis was murdered uh, off on an island off the coast of Africa. Suddenly, Roberts is thrust into a leadership position. And in true Charles Bronson fashion, he then goes back to the island, takes the crew at night, and they basically kill everybody they can find to revenge the death of, the, of, of Captain Davis. So when Glasby is captured, he's offered the chance to become a pirate, but he refuses. He sticks to his guns, no pun intended, and says, I'm not one of you. I will guide your ship, but I'm not one of you. And the story really is about how he tries to cope with these harsh living conditions, the violence that there is part and parcel of their daily life almost, and, and struggles to become free. So one of the things that I've known in my years of, of knowing you is, is that there are oftentimes books that you fall in love with as a reader that have a certain uh, court element or law element to them. That book about um, Oscar Wilde that I promise I'm going to read uh, <laughs> that you gave to me has a lot of information about the trial of Oscar Wilde is how, I guess, knowing that the pirates had such a regimented sort of trial system, how different was their system to, say, the Royal Navy's system at the time or the colonial system? It was probably more the same than different because they would have used it. They would have used what they, they knew. But I, some of the things I learned would be shocking to us today, and it actually helps explain why the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Even, even in, in the early 1700s, if you refused to plead to a, to a charge, they would take you to the press yard. What they would do is, and they would do this for several days, they would stack large stones on your chest. They would stake you out. They'd feed you bread and water to keep you alive 
to force you to either plead guilty or not guilty. They would wrap, they would put your thumbs together and wrap cords around it and pull it tight. Essentially, it was torture. Uh, this, and flogging was so brutal that uh, it could often result in a man's death. In fact, at the very first trial in my book, Roberts is attacked by one of the pirates. And then this pirate, whose name was Jones, goes on trial. His sentence was to receive two lashes from every member of the crew. That kind of punishment could result in a man's death. It was very bloody. I mean, they would beat the skin off your back until the bones were visible. And this would occur on naval vessels. It occurred in the British Army. That was the life that they led. There is a trial in the book when uh, they're all captured. And they were allowed to talk to an attorney, but the attorney couldn't question witnesses and couldn't speak at the trial. Perhaps the most famous pirate trial in history is the, is the trial of Captain Kidd, which was in London in 1701. And he was given a lawyer the day before the trial. It was already a foregone conclusion that he was going to be convicted. There was a lot of politics involved because of privateering, where rich investors, lords and dukes, would invest in privateering, and they would be given what were called letters of marque to go out and seize ships from France or Spain or whoever the enemy was at the time, and it could be very lucrative. Captain Kidd fell into that, but eventually became a pirate. After a two-day trial, uh, he was hanged in London because at that time, pirates all over the world had to be brought back to London for trial. Now, that changed later. I've learned in visiting Charleston that they had there were many pirates hanged in Charleston, South Carolina. There were many pirates hanged in Boston, Newport, Rhode Island, New York. Uh, that was just, a, they lived in a very brutal world. But um, the pirate trials were slightly different because they, they, they actually impaneled a jury. They would take six men that were appointed and then they'd let the accused pick the other six. So at least they gave you a shot at having a fair trial and they tried their best to be fair but the punishments were often, often very draconian. And one of the things that was true in the Royal Navy as well as on pirate ships is, once you're in, you're not gonna get out. It's kinda like the mafia. Mm -hmm. You can sign up, but there's really no exit strategy. So deserting was viewed as a capital offense. Thus, the two men that were caught with Harry Glassby were, were shot. Now, so since this is a cigar podcast, I do wanna talk about tobacco a little bit, because you mentioned the Caribbean, and course, Barbados being a big uh, tobacco island, was there, how much, how much tobacco was there in that time? How much, you know, were, were the, you, going back to the stereotype of pirates, I think about a pirate smoking a pipe, but how accurate is that? It's very accurate. Uh, tobacco was an extremely popular pastime. And tobacco plantations in the South, Virginia, North Carolina, it was a huge source of revenue for the British Empire was tobacco. And one of the dangers on a ship is fire. I mean, these ships are made of wood. And it was, uh, they normally would have been forced to smoke on the deck. In one of the trials I have, they, um, they allowed the pirates to smoke their clay pipes below decks, which would have been sort of like a treat, because normally they wouldn't have been allowed to do so because of the risk of catching the ship on fire and everybody perishing. But no, tobacco uh, was a very early cash crop, and it was one of the things that, that made the, the colonies so, so profitable. So I'm a definition person, and uh, you and I have talked numerous times in here over a good cigar about the definition of manhood. 
What is the definition of pirate? If you had to sum it up, what, what, at what point are you no longer an independent businessman and you've become a pirate? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a thin line between privateers and piracy. To create and man a navy was a huge expenditure for a government. So if you had privateers, and one of the most famous privateers is Sir Francis Drake, he was really a pirate. But he had a piece of paper that said that he was allowed to be a pirate as long as he turned in 10% of his loot to the crown. And he was a pirate during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I when they fought the Spanish Armada. Francis Drake is actually the first person to successfully circumnavigate the globe. Magellan gets the credit, but Magellan was killed in the Philippines. Drake actually sailed around the world and made it back. But he brought in so much money that he was, <clears throat> he was knighted and made Sir Francis Drake because the British couldn't afford their own navy, so they would basically take on independent contractors that were willing to be pirates who would seize French vessel, vessels, Spanish vessels, Dutch vessels, whoever the enemy was at the time. To become a pirate meant that you just took whatever you saw. So if you went after the vessels of all nations, you were a pirate. But you can see that the line is a fairly thin one. And um, they, used, they used the threat of force as much as they did the use of force because they didn't want to pay out that workers' comp to the guys that were killed in a battle. There were ships that, that that fought them. And sometimes the pirates would break off and, and go away because they, they weren't there to fight. They were there to steal. And that, that's the difference. So what was the weapon of choice? Blackbeard is famous for, um, or infamous, for carrying six flintlock pistols stuck in his gear and then having matches. We, not matches as we would think of them, but long, thin things that are wrapped that have gunpowder in them, he would wind them into his beard and light them to create this ferocious image. Um, they used knives, cutlasses, which is a short sword, and uh, they used muskets. They would sometimes fire muskets from the rigging, as that's what the Royal Marines did. That's, that's a precursor. I'm, I'm a Marine. That's what Marines did. They would during a sea battle, they would perch themselves in the, in the rigging and they would pick you off like snipers from the, these masts. And the masts on these ships were often 100 feet tall. So, so not for the faint of heart. No. So you're perched up there. And the way, that, the way that pirates would seize a vessel was not through cannon fire, the broadside. They, they, they carried cannons and swivel guns, which were like giant shotguns. But the way that they would intimidate you and take your ship was to board you, boarding parties. And once you turn loose a hundred crazy pirates with their faces blackened with, with uh, gunpowder or charcoal, uh, their eyes ablaze with, with, with it, was a, it was almost a form of terrorism. Um, they carried pikes. But you can imagine these, when we see these movies and we think of these ships, we think of these grand multi-masted, large, beautiful sailing ships. Some of these were very small. They weren't very broad, so they might be from one side to the other 20 feet. 
if you have men fighting, they're fighting in close quarters. It was up close and personal. And the same thing of their, of their enemies. They would also be armed with uh, flintlock pistols and muskets. But because the captains on the Royal Navy ships and on the merchant ships didn't trust the crew, they often kept the weapons locked up where they couldn't get at them. One of the articles on a pirate ship was you had to keep your weapons clean and in good order. So they were very mission-oriented. You, you could be as dirty as the, as the nearest pig wallowing in, in, in pig slop. But if you were found with a dirty weapon or a rusted blade, uh, you, you, you ran the risk of, of facing the lash for not keeping your weapons primed and ready. The other thing I learned is that when you're at sea, you could go for weeks and not see another ship. But when you saw a ship and it was time to go to, to, go to work and do business, they always sailed with their cannons loaded. They were ready. They were ready. And uh, just the more, it's, it's like so many subjects, you know, the more you read, the more you want to know. I say that the real life and how they lived is far more interesting than some of the characters, stereotypes that, that we see at Halloween and at, at pirate events. The, the, again, they were very flamboyant. They dressed, they sometimes dressed in the nature of like a black beard. And even Bartholomew Roberts was known for his feather in his cap, his red crimson coat, uh, his leather boots, and he too carried the, the loaded pistols in, in, his, uh, in his accoutrements so that he could be ready to do business when the time came. Well, this is, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Um, I was gonna say, this is really fascinating. It is coming up along that time that we take a break. So we're gonna step aside for a moment, uh, regroup, and we'll be right back with more of this in just a moment. Here. Now, normally in this time of the show, you would be waiting to hear us wax poetic about some etiquette tip of the week. Uh, unfortunately, this week we got a little carried away with the fun we were having with our guest, Jay Drescher, and we forgot to include a cigar under $8. So you'll hear that later in the show. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you about the Tarano Vault series. Now, back in September of 2014, General Cigar bought the Tarano Family Cigar Company, and they did some amazing things, not only to their blends, but their marketing, and one of the things they did was come out with the Vault Series. Now, they make it in about three different blends to uh, fit your palate, depending on what you're looking for. Um, this cigar retails anywhere from $5.50 to about $6.50. So it's right in that, that perfect wheelhouse to be able to try something new. Uh, when you first pick up the cigar, the one thing you're going to notice and the first thing I notice is how similar it looks to the Camacho that came out around the same time. The bands are nearly identical, uh, but there's actually nothing about the two that are related in any way uh, other than the fact that the color-coded bands indicate the different blends. Um, all of them have uh, Nic Art Nicaraguan in origin, so you know that Shane and I really love that sort of thing. This is going to bring a little bit of spice up front, but it's going to mellow out into some cedar and cocoa flavors that if you're really looking for something that's just smooth and well-blended, you really can't go wrong. Why don't you grab one today? During the break, uh, I, I turned to a page of the book that deals with uh, tobacco use, 
This is toward the end, and uh, our protagonist, Terry Glasby, is surprised to find that one of the pirates he sailed with has walked into his pub in Marblehead, Massachusetts. It's the same Valentine Ashplant that we talked about earlier who was his savior at his trial and kept him from being executed. I recognized the distinguished visitor instantly, but the shock at seeing him after all those years paralyzed me from top to bottom. Overcoming my disbelief, I joyfully sat at his table, saying not a word. The old man did not merely look at me, rather he looked into me. It was all I could do not to shout his name in boyish wonder. I asked if he would care for a pipe. His eyes sparkled. He nodded and said he would not mind a pipe. So I got up and fetched one, came back, and watched him smoke for a long minute. Despite the wear on his rough hands and scarred fingers, he handled the lit match like a seamstress wields her needle. When his pipe was lit, he waved the match to extinguish the tiny flame, and with a flourish, tossed the smoking splinter over his shoulder where it landed on the stone floor, never taking his eyes off mine. He wore an impish grin, and as he smiled, his eyes formed curved quarter moons in his wrinkled skin, deeply scored and weathered by long years at sea. At last, I gave in to his desire to have me strike the first strike. Valentine, how is that tobacco? He took another puff or two and pronounced it, damned fine. Lord Valentine Ashplant was smoking in my pub. That's our guest, Jay Drescher, this evening. I'm Shane Reeves here with Trey Dedman. We're Welcome back, back from the break. And Jay's book, before we go any further, is Glasby's Fortune, G-L-A-S-B-Y-S, Fortune, and it's James H. Dresser, available on Amazon and on Amazon Kindle. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. We're very excited, and we've talked a lot about your book and about pirates in the first half, and I think we could record six podcasts of me just sitting here listening to you, because I, I just really enjoy it. Now, having spent, you know, the better part of half an hour with the cans on my ears and listened to you address that migrant, is there an audiobook coming? You know, um, I was asked that by a, a friend of mine who was uh, blinded in Iraq, and um, I believe on some of the more up-to-date Kindles, there is a, there is a voice component to that. I I looked on Amazon. I think there is, um, on a Kindle HD, for example, I think it is voice-enabled is what it's called. I have not tried it, so I don't know for sure. Um, I don't know if this book is going to sell enough to to have it recorded and made into an audio book. That would be awesome. Um, But again, as I say, it's a a fairly quick read. Uh, People that have read it and have commented on it, there's a lot of very nice and fine reviews on Amazon. So that's been very rewarding. And I appreciate the fact that you all have let me talk so much about what turned into a real labor of love for me. You know, I always admire somebody that they say, how do you write a book? You write a book. You decide you're going to do it. You do the work. You put the effort in. And you write it. It took you about, what, six months to really put this book together? took three months to write the first draft and then another three months of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting again to try to make it to where I where somebody that I know like you or, or like Trey would enjoy reading it. That was my aim was to A, satisfy myself and tell a good story and then be able to share that with someone else who might say, hey, I read your book and I really liked it. And that, that's the reward. That's really, that's really the reward when you paint a picture or 
you make something with your hands, something you create, if somebody else gets enjoyment from it, that's really, that's really the greatest reward there is. So sliding back to cigar news, Trey, you've got to tell me about the Warped. So it is definitely lighter than what I typically smoke. Um, but it, that being said, it's still in the medium plus range. So it's not, it didn't scare me off as much as I was afraid it was going to. Being a Nicaraguan Puro, it's everything that I love in a cigar. I'm getting lots of that real uh, kind of leathery spice flavors to it. It's one that at, the, at an $11 price tag, I would definitely go back to it. The Anaconda started out sweet, and very rarely does tobacco start sweet for me. But it started out sweet, and it's just it's just an excellent cigar. I cannot, I liked the, sea, the I haven't had the Fuma Encorda. I liked the straight up Brazilian. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy the, um, the Amazon Basin release. But this Anaconda has blew them all away. I've really loved this cigar. It's my favorite of the three by far. Yeah, it's just uh, the Braganca tobacco. Again, listen to past shows. You can hear us talk about how they actually twist it and make it. And just a wonderful cigar. I'm, just, I'm having a ball tonight. This is, <laughs> this is my me night because I get to come do the podcast, and I usually go eat somewhere nice beforehand. Tonight I went to the Cajun place and had a po' boy. And just absolutely having a blast tonight sitting here talking with Trey and Jay about how life works. But now it's time for my fun part. So tonight we're going to play a little game. We're going, it is Sharknado week, as I mentioned before. And I love the Bee Monster movie. If there's a rubber lizard chasing a G.I. Joe, I'm in. And this week is kind of the Bee Monster movie palooza, but we're going to pay homage to Adam Carolla's Rotten Tomatoes game. So, Jay, here's how you play. I know Trey knows because he listens to the Corolla show. I'm going to give him the name of a movie, and I'll give a short description. You have to guess what the critics rated it. Zero being flee from the theater, yell fire in a crowded theater if you find yourself trapped in this movie. 100% being drop the baby and head to the theaters. Now, so are you familiar with the website Rotten Tomatoes? I am. I okay. Am. So it's based on, it's based on their score. So we're going to start tonight. I will read the movie and give it a short description because I have seen all of these. And then y'all will give me what, you're, what you think the rating of the movie is. We're going to start out with the classic Sharknado. This movie came out in 2013, was an instant success. It's about a tornado at sea that gets filled full of sharks, comes, al- comes to land, stars Ian Zering as Finn, and Tara Reid is his estranged wife at the time, and they came back together during the crux of the series. But what did the critics rate Sharknado? Jay? I was going to make Trey go first. Okay, go ahead, Trey. Uh, well, I was trying to get something queued up so we could keep score over here. I've uh, got it. Oh, okay, good. So um, I remember when this, when this movie came out, it was... It, it, in terms of viewership, it broke all of sci-fi's records, so I know it had a huge following, but if we're going off the critic score, I can't imagine it was more than, I don't know, I'm going to say 29. 29. Jay, what do you think? Well, I'm reminded of The Price is Right, so if I had to pick something, I'd say 30 just to be one up, (laughs) but I'm going to say 55. 55. This is going to surprise you. Sharknado, certified fresh at 82%. Kidding? 
god. Sharknado is now 82%, so Jay takes an early lead. <laughs> Our next movie, 2010, Sharktopus. Covert go- government operation. They're creating a Sharktopus, because I know there's a number of times in naval history having a half-shark, half-octopus hybrid would be handy. And they create it, and of course, as that always happens in these movies, the Sharktopus goes rogue and starts killing people. Trey, what would you say Sharktopus rated with the critics? And this is starring uh, Ralph Garman, as I recall. It did. Um, This is tough for me because I don't have a love for this genre like you do, so I'm inclined to stay in that 30 range with everything. (laughs) That's why I used Sharknado first. I wanted to throw you off guard. this doesn't. This pretty much the only time I ever see this on TV is right is right around Sharknado week. So I'm guessing it doesn't get a whole lot of play outside of that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm, against my better judgment, I'm gonna say forty. Forty, Jay. What do you think, Sharktopus? What do you think the critics thought of this filmic opus? I have a strong feeling that Trey's probably within five points either way. So I'm just, I'm just gonna say forty-five. Forty-five. Sharktopus, right down the middle, 50%. Right. <laughs> Rotten Tomato score. Now, this was the next movie in 2009. It was the first of this kind of genre that really started getting people watching Sharknado Week on sci-fi. Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. <laughs> so the Mega Shark is entombed in a glacier, and once again, the Navy's out performing submarine maneuvers. Um, and they break loose the giant shark, which in turn breaks loose the giant octopus, and they're battling it out at sea. This is really memorable. Eric Roberts was actually in Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, as well as th- these movies seem to attract these out-of-date fashion models, and one <laughs> of them was in there as well. I don't remember her name. But Trey, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. I'm... These, it is surprising to me how well the critics appreciate these films. Uh, you're continuing to stump me here. I am going to say forty-two. Forty-two. And Jay, what is your guess for Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus? You know, um, I think there's an advantage that I have making Trey go first. So make me go first next time. I'm sure that both of you all know that Eric Roberts is Julia Roberts' brother. She's done a little bit better in the box office than he has. <laughs> uh, what was your What was your prediction, Trey? Forty-two. You know, I'm gonna. I should have trusted my gut on the first two because I would have been much closer. But I'm gonna give this a thirty-five and just be a little contrarian. Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus is rotten at fifteen percent. <laughs> Very low rating. Jay is I'll take that as a win again. Jay, yeah, Jay is wearing it out. I'll go first next time, Trey. That might help you. <laughs> so for the one that Jay's going to go first, this is the 2013 classic Ghost Shark. Ghost Shark, a shark is accidentally killed in a terrible means and comes back as a ghost. Um, and for some reason, this ghost can manifest anywhere there's water. He comes up out of toilets. He, co- he at one point eats the mayor by coming out of a glass of water. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and a great bikini car wash scene where the ghost shark shows up and starts eating supermodels. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. 2013's Ghost Shark. Jay? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out just for a minute. I was just reading not too long ago 
about a very famous bikini wash car scene in Cool Hand Luke. George Kennedy does a great job, along with all the other prisoners in the movie, of watching the warden's wife, who's basically in a wet t-shirt contest washing the car. But the way the, the way the scene was filmed, there was nobody washing the car. These were just the actors pretending to react to her wash, washing the car. Tell me that it was Ghost Shark? 2013's Ghost Shark. He got lost in his mind's eye thinking about her and the wet. Actually, <laughs> the same, if this helps, it's the same year that Sharknado came out. I'm going to have to give this a 35. 35. Trey, what's your guess? I... So, again, I'm at a disadvantage of the fact... What, I mean, Jay is at the same disadvantage. I'm guessing you've probably never seen any of these either. I'm going eight. This is the benefits of a classical education. I've seen all of these movies. And oftentimes when I say benefits of a classical education, I just mean people that watched Bugs Bunny when they were young. Ghost Shark is certified rotten at 18%. I made a little back. Trey gets a little bit back with eight, and Jay loses a little ground with 35. And our last movie. You know, that movie was rated so bad, it's probably worth watching just to see it. Oh, generally, if the critics hate them, that's where I go. That's now, the, if any of these movies end up on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, then I'll be right there. <laughs> then, you, then you will have seen them. So, 2007, probably the best thought-out plot of all these B-monster movies belongs to 2007's Ice Spiders. So, the plot is, spider silk is such a strong tensile that they want to start making body armor for soldiers out of spider silk. Well, they can't harvest enough out of the standard spiders, so they create giant spiders <laughs> in order to do this. Well, and they don't want the giant spiders to get away and start eating people, so they do it on a mountain in the middle of a ski resort, and of course the spiders escape and start eating snow bunnies right and left, which is a great turn for the movie. This was just a well-thought-out movie. I'd like everybody to take a moment to appreciate how hard some guy worked to figure out ice spiders. <laughs> so, ice spiders, Jay. I have to agree with you that that's uh, there's some real thought that went into that screenplay. I'm going to give that a 30. 30? And Trey, what do you have for Ice Spiders? I have got such a deficit working against me that now I'm starting to play this strategically instead of thinking about the movie. Um, uh, was Hail Mary pass right up the middle. 80. 80, wow. That, that is a bold prediction. That is a bold prediction. Unfortunately, <laughs> Ice Spiders, <laughs> certified rotten, I believe unfairly, at 16%. Oh. So at the end of the day... Well, you could have surprised me by going back up the mountain on that last one. That was the I only chance I had. I could have, but you don't know how hard I had to work to find some that were rated high because I knew you would go low with everything <laughs> being the credits pick. So for a moment while I tally the scores, I believe Jay won handily, but I still need to tally the scoring. Jay, Trey, talk for a moment. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. So I know that your 
um, inspiration for the book came out of things that you've read. Are you reading anything now that is kind of tickling that creative side of your brain? You know, I know you're big into Vikings before the. Well, I love history and I love reading, and um, I, I really do like historical fiction. And when you think about it, Gone with the Wind is historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, Arthur Conan Doyle has written a lot of historical fiction. We all know him for the Sherlock Holmes stories, but he's written some really incredible historical fiction. Um, Oftentimes, authors will write a series of books or a trilogy. I didn't think I had another book about pirates in me, but I've started reading about the American Revolution. And Glasby uh, goes to Marblehead, Massachusetts. He's from Boston. And I'm learning about the American Revolution with the notion of writing a book called Prescott's Fortune. Oh. And it will be about Glasby and his family, his, his, his offspring, his grandkids. Just as an aside, when I wrote the short story, I threw in a, a tidbit at the end because I learned that we all know who Paul Revere is. Many people will have heard of William Dawes. They rode to warn the militia in Lexington and Concord that the British were coming. And as I recall, Dawes actually did the majority of the writing that night. Well, what you, what you are about to learn is that there was a guy named Dr. Samuel Prescott, who in my world will be Glasby's grandson, who was the only writer that made it all the way to Concord, and he was a real person. So if I can, if I can cobble together a story that will keep the reader's attention while focusing on all the nuances that led up to the American Revolution, which I frankly did not know a great deal about until I started reading about it. It's a fascinating story about how America became the United States of America in 1776. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on right now. What is, your, what is your go-to when you're looking for research? Because obviously historical fiction is not going to do much for you in terms of accuracy to bring into your own piece. Where, where do you go to, to research your characters and your plot points and things like that? Well, I have a large stack of books, which includes uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, very highly acclaimed biography of Benjamin Franklin. I've already read about Lexington and Concord. There's a, there's a big dispute among cities as to being the birthplace of the American Navy. Marblehead is in, involved in that. Uh, there really wasn't very much of an American Navy in, in the War of Independence. The British had a massive, massive Navy to help uh, patrol and protect their empire. Um, but I, I, I turn to books, uh, and, and the thing that I, always amazes me is how someone like Arthur Conan Doyle could write these stories called Sir Nigel and the White Company about medieval times. The poor guy didn't have access to the Internet. There's a lot of information that's available on the Internet, so I use that as well. But most, most of my go-to is to, is to read books and to, and to pick and choose the things that, that I think can be woven together to make a historically accurate book but also tell a story that involves real people and, and real emotions and real conflict and real redemption, the things that make, that, that make any story attractive to a reader. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that in, in pre-internet, I mean, even just thinking about what we do for this show, our show prep is all done online. You know, rarely do we go to one of the uh, publications, you know, the print publications in the industry, we almost all exclusively use the internet, and it's become such a tremendous resource. Um, I've become a big fan lately of um, reading uh, nonfiction, um, Eric Larson specifically, and the the level of detail that it takes to get something that's not only historically accurate, but entertaining, 
is um, is tremendous. It's a tremendous amount of work, as clearly you've demonstrated. And I'm I'm really looking forward to get getting. I was I was thankful that I was able to get the author's signature on your book uh, last Thursday night. And I can't wait. It's unfortunately my bookshelf is a little backed up, but I will tell you that I have put your book in front of the Oscar Wilde book that you gave me a, a number of months ago. So it's next on the list. Well, as you should. Actually, Eric Larson's book, The Devil in the White City, is probably what put him on the map. He wrote another book about uh, pre-World War II Berlin. And then he wrote That's a recent, what I'm reading now. He, he wrote a recent book called Dead Wake, which is about the Lusitania, which went down on May 7th, 1915. But he is, he, like Barbara Tuckman. Uh, back in the day, it was uh, James Michener who wrote the epics about Hawaii and Poland and Texas. That takes an extra level of work because not only are they regaling us with history, but they're excellent writers. They're mm-hmm. just really gifted writers, and Eric Larson is, is way up there. He's a really, really good writer. Uh, Ambrose was a good writer. Band of Brothers, Citizen Soldiers. He took history and made it real because they're real people they're not about statistics and how many people were killed in the battle. It's about who fought, who did this, who did that. He really makes it personal, and it's very engaging. So, you know, to, to, be, a good, to be a good writer and to tell a good story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is, is really an art. It really is. And Eric Larson is really at the top of his game. He's a great writer. Well, and it's a very good point that history is about the people and not the events necessarily. There's a, a song that I, that I really love called The Greenfields of France. And it's sort of a ballad about this guy stopping to rest in a World War One uh, graveyard, and he's ta- he's you know kneeling beside this headstone, and he's imagining who this person was. He's not just a fallen soldier, but it's you know in someone's mind, in someone's heart, are you forever 19 years old? You know, it, it does your legacy lives on, and and it's it's really important. It's 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 really impassioned to think of it in those terms. So the scores are in. You got your shoes back on. I know you were counting I, toes. I had to do a lot of counting. I had to use all of the powers of the iPhone's calculator. And Jay wins with a score of 105. <laughs> Trey, he only beat you by 20 points, 125. Are you serious? So it was closer than you thought. Well, then I should have gone with my first guess, which would have been right around that 10% mark. You'd have probably, yeah, you'd have, you'd have been closer, but Jay just dominated yeah, the, he did. the Rotten Tomatoes game. Again, homage to Adam Carolla's show, but I love that part of the show. <laughs> and so, Jay, coming back to cigars and coming back to the cigar lounge, and when we're sitting around the cigar lounge, you always have something interesting to talk to, to talk to someone about. Do you think about that before you come here? Do you do a little premeditative work, or does it, is it all flow, stream of consciousness for you? You know, I just, uh, I, I think I've been blessed with a, sort of a, an ingrained notion of being curious. I've met people in this cigar shop from South Africa, from Ireland, from Iran. Some, are the, some of them are regular customers. Some of them come in one time. But my wife and I talked about this once. When you, when you meet somebody and they never ask you a question, they're not curious. The way that you engage in conversation is just to ask questions. Well, why did you do that? Where are you from? What's the most interesting place you've ever been? Where would you like to live if you could pick anywhere you want to live? They're, 
we, we came to this conclusion once when we met an old woman at a party. She was an elderly lady. Turns out that she'd worked in a, a, a war factory during World War II. She was one of, you know, Rosie the Riveter. She made tanks or trucks or whatever it is. I don't know what it was. It wasn't airplanes, I know that. But it was a fascinating story about the contribution that she made. Um, everybody has a story to tell. Everybody. I don't care who they are, how old they are, where they're from. Uh, and it's just a matter of... The, the one thing that we're all good at is talking about ourselves. So you just ask people, you know, wh where are you from? The guy from South Africa, his father was an uh, officer in the, in the African Armed Forces. He's an Afrikaner, and he goes back and forth to Africa and goes on big game hunts. A very interesting guy. And uh, he was on the South African rugby team and traveled the world. And if, if you want to hear some really good stories, ask him about some of the after-the-game antics that being a South African rugby player, you, you don't have to have a great imagination to think about some of the stories he has, but it's just really interesting. And, and everybody that comes in here uh, and smokes a cigar and, and has a beer or just sits down and talks, they all have a good story to tell. I, I think that for those who are going to be uh, listening to this podcast, they can't wait to get one of the cigars that you've talked about and, and test it for themselves and sit in front of their big screen TV and watch Eye Spiders. Was that the name of the film? Eye Spiders, yeah. exactly. I think I'm one of those. I may have to get a cigar and watch Eye Spiders just to see what my own take on that film is. <laughs> well, Shane, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that there are people, when you see their car in the parking lot, the cigar shop, that just makes you that much more excited to walk through the front door. And I agree that Jay is one of those people for me. And a big part of that is that he's always ready with a trivia question. And some of our best nights here after the show has been sitting up at the bar just trading trivia questions back and forth. So, Jay, I'm going to give you a minute to prepare and to think of something, but I'd love it if you would regale us with a trivia question. But in the meantime, do we have a cigar under $8 this week? Actually, this week we don't. I had the Rotten Tomatoes game, and I knew I had Jay on and that we would be doing some talking. So this week we don't have our cigar under $8. New theme coming soon. And... We'll worry about that next week. Sounds like a plan. I'll catch that next week. Now, this week I also do want to remind everyone, you can get us at facebook.com slash thecigarcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at thecigarcast. And you can always email your questions, such as where do I get James H. Dresser's book, Glass Beef's Fortune, at info at thecigarcast.com. So, Jay, trivia us out. I'm going to start with the one I use so often when we play the trivia game, and that is everybody knows that Abraham Lincoln was the president during the Civil War. Most everybody that lives in the South knows that Jeff Davis was his, his enemy, the president of the Confederacy. Who was the vice president of the Confederate States of America? And you know what's so amazing to me about this trivia question is the fact that I've heard it maybe five times and I still don't know the answer even though. I have no idea. Who was it? Alexander Stevens was the vice president. If you want to really dig deep, when Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865, Tennessean Andrew Johnson became president. He's only one of two presidents to be impeached. Both presidents that were impeached were not removed from office. Johnson was the first. Who was the second? Bill Clinton. That is correct. That wasn't the dig deep. Who was Abraham Lincoln's first vice president? 
It wasn't Johnson. Couldn't. I have no idea. Hmm. Hannibal Hamlin from Maine was the first vice president. Nobody's ever heard of him. Great name. Well, Jay, I certainly appreciate you stopping by and uh, regaling us with stories from the book and talking to us on the show this week. It was absolutely a pleasure. Can't wait to have you back someday in the future. In the meantime, we hope you all have learned something this week. It's definitely been the most educational uh, edition of the Cigar Cast. And have a great week. Smoke some great cigars. And we will see you next week. 